on today's episode of Life Embodied. Give yourself permission to be a playful person. Give yourself permission to touch the world. You know, I guess the, mm. the big saying among the younger crowd these days is touch grass. <laughs> yeah. Go touch grass. Take your shoes <laughs> off, walk in the grass, hang from a tree branch. It will be healing for sure. Welcome to Life Embodied, where we explore how an embodiment practice can support us in meeting the challenges of life. How can we surf the waves of life deeply anchored in the safety of our bodies? How can we learn to trust our capacity to be with intense sensations and emotions? How can we cultivate body awareness and why does it matter? Episodes include interviews with experts and practitioners that bring their knowledge and passion and share practical tips for your everyday life. I am your host, Katharina Alf. Thank you for joining us and enjoy the conversation. Hi, everybody. Let me introduce today's guest to you. It's Rafe Kelly, an athlete and trainer with a very diverse background, including martial arts, gymnastics, and parkour. As a child, Rafe was diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia, and with the help of his mentor, who encouraged natural movement and roughhousing, he was able to overcome these disabilities and later went to study anthropology and evolutionary biology in college. In 2013, he founded Evolve Move Play, where they empower people to move the way humans were meant to. In the middle of the collective meaning crisis of our times, Rafe seeks to create meaning through movement and connection, not only to ourselves, but to others and to nature. So, welcome to the show, Rafe. Thank you, Katarina. It's great to be here. Let me start with this question. What is it like being your body today? <laughs> um, I have a little bit of soreness in my lower back right now. Um, my body has kind of pleasant, really gone some muscle soreness from some good training last night, a really effective training day yesterday. And just recently I've been having great success in my training. Um, I feel good in my body. I feel really confident in my strength and my power and where I'm at with my body. And then I'm kind of raw emotionally today just because of some personal life stuff that's happening. So I'm all right. I'm optimistic things are, are moving in the right direction, but there's a little bit more of an agitated or slightly, um, my, my emotional strings are a little bit more tightly wound right now. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing this. Yeah, no problem. I would later on be very curious to hear maybe some thoughts on also emotional regulation from you. Mm -hmm. But let's start with the more physical aspect. Sure. The way I understand your work, it's it's a lot about creating a meaningful fitness practice. Is it? Yeah, so that we don't just work out to work out because we should, because it's good for our health, because it yeah. makes us look better, or because it, you know, even not only because it raises our level of energy, maybe, or we notice it does us good, but to create meaning with the way we work out or the kinds of workouts we choose. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what is your take on this? How do we create a 
meaningful fitness practice? Yeah. So if you think about really developmentally starting as a baby, the world is very unformed for you. It doesn't, um, it doesn't have a lot of clear meaning. It's very chaotic actually. And you essentially rely on the container of your mother to dampen everything down, make the world sort of safe for you. But as you begin to develop some mobility, some capacity, what you're doing in some sense is mapping in the body itself. So babies spend a lot of time exploring their own bodies, like looking at their fingers and doing what their fingers can do, grabbing their feet and sucking on their toes, right? In the nervous system, the mouth, the mouth is just one of the most neurally rich areas in the body throughout life. But in particular, it's the part of the body that's most wired up when we're born because we have to solve the first problem of nursing. And so for we, we wonder why kids want to stick things in their mouth. But the mouth is actually the most accurate way for a small child, a baby, to get a feel, to get a sense of the meaning of what they're experiencing. And so they're starting to interact with the world through this right away. And so that's why they put their foot in their mouth because their foot is kind of like a, a foreign thing to them. They don't have it well represented in their brain yet. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, this is a thing. Wow. What is that? What does that mean? What can I do with this? And so they're mapping their bodies. And at the same time, every time that a child has an emotion, that emotion is played out physically when they're upset, when they're scared, when they're angry when they're, you know, having digestion, right? Their body will generate a protest and that protest is physically expressed. They, they arch their back, they scream, they ball their fists. And so the, the emotions themselves, we in some sense are able to abstract them into a kind of avatar in the head, but initially they're actually all inherently connected to motor action. So the somatic map of the emotions is motoric. Now we know that for instance, when we learn to read, it's very difficult to start reading by reading internally. And so when we read, or even when we think, what we're actually doing is speaking, right? You have a narrative in your mind that's playing, right? Why did I do this thing? Maybe I should have done that thing, right? You think of that as like pure unformed thought. But if you look at it and you look at the brain itself, what you'll see is that the motor neurons associated with forming speech in the throat are firing every time you're forming narrative in your mind. You've just learned to inhibit those neurons down to the point or the, the physical aspect of them to the point where you're not perceptually able to pick up that you're actually moving in order to think. You're moving in some sense when you have emotions and you see this in people when they are upset, their body changes position, the way that they interact with the space around them changes position. So the meaning of your own emotions, the meaning of your own body is revealed to you through movement. And we forget this as we kind of evolve into a Cartesian sense of the self. And then the same thing happens to the environment. So a small baby really has a very limited environment. Its environment is its mother's body, right? And the, the constraint and the affordance that it's looking for is the affordance to nurse and to be warm, right? 
and it's, it's communicating and to be cleaned, right? But it relies on its mother to be cleaned. So all those things are just being played out in that dynamic. But as that baby develops the capacity to move itself, all of a sudden it is figuring out what everything means in the world. So a couch becomes a thing that you pull yourself up on and cruise across that allows you to get to your mother when she's away from you. They get away from your mother when you don't want to be close to her, <laughs> right? You're exploring <laughs> these things. And, um, and as, you know, as babies explore and they pick up a cup and they drop the cup on the ground and their mother expresses that she's upset about the cup being put on the ground, then that, then that through the movement, the child is actually deriving the social meaning of that object. So we are, we are constantly cultivating the meaning of the world. And then the same thing happens as we move into moving with other people. So with your, with your mother, you start with nursing, but then you're playing peekaboo, you're gesturing, you're smiling. Like before we ever learn to speak, there's this incredibly rich language of gesture and touch that is teaching you what it means to be in dialogue with another living agent. So all those meanings are, are inherent to how we move. So what happens when you take on, what, what, what tends to happen in our culture is that we abstract out all these embodied physical movement experiences and we create these avatars in our head and then we live inside the avatars and we can become more and more disconnected from the primal roots of it, right? So you might think a lot in your head, but never actually speak to somebody. Or we can think when we learn to write, that's another way of of representing thought that then we embody and we can play out the process of composing something in the head because we now have written the structure of something. Someone who's an artist can imagine art that they've created because they've gone through the motoric process of creating art repeatedly. A musician can compose in their head because they're literally firing all the motor neurons associated with creating those notes. So all that meaning is in movement. Now, when we spend all of our day on a computer looking at all box typing, what's happening is that actually the meanings that are intrinsic to the environment all around us are slowly atrophying. So we are becoming literally disconnected in our fundamental relationship to the physical reality of the environment and of the self, right? People are blind to their own emotions because they are not attuning and paying attention to how those things are playing out in their bodies. So we talk about um, four fundamental layers of physical practice. So the first one is the somatic and structural layer. So this is the baby putting its foot in its mouth, right? Or the baby screaming and, and, and arching its back. It's going back and making sure that all of the structural pieces of the body communicate well to each other and they're well integrated and that, that the mind understands what the emotional significance of what's happening in the body actually is because we can become blind to our emotions. We can be driven by emotions that we're not even aware of. Yeah. So we believe that everyone needs a somatic and structural element to their practice, the embodiment piece. And I'm, I'm guessing your audience is primarily sort of in that embodiment world and this is all going to make sense to them. But what I don't think is realized widely in the embodiment community is that's really only one of four fundamental relationships that we have to have, right? We can't spend all of our time kind of at the developmental stage of zero to six months. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we really, really need it. 
right? Yeah. But like you didn't evolve to just like have a really sophisticated sense of your emotions in your body or a sophisticated sense of, of how your structures interrelate. You evolved to be able to use that body mind to go out and accomplish things in the environment. And the things that we accomplish in the environment fundamentally have to do with being able to move through the environment, being able to manipulate the environment and being able to work with other agents in the environment. So for us, a practice that has to go from that structural and somatic layer to a um, locomotive layer. How do I move myself through the uh, world? And so when you, for us, the, the fundamental practice is parkour. Parkour is a recent discipline in some sense, but it's essentially just a naming of this fundamental principle of play that exists in every human society and really in all animals, which is exploratory locomotor play. Parkour is exploratory locomotor play, which literally maps the meaning of the environment into at the base level of what you're physically capable of in relationship to that environment. So you see a wall, do you see just a, a, a closure of space that you can no longer access? And a parkour athlete sees something that can be climbed, something that can be jumped off of, something that can be interacted with in any number of ways. So at a very literal level, they are actually experiencing the world as having more meanings than someone who doesn't have access to these physical skills. And the same thing is true of, of, of manipulating objects, right? Every child likes to play with a ball, a stick, rope, swing things around, manipulate things with their hands because we're tool using animals. And that's the fundamental kind of exploration that becomes making fire, that becomes sewing, that becomes knitting, that becomes making food, that becomes building a, uh, a table. So Aristotle famously had this idea of the, the conformity theory of knowledge. Like you have a vague representation of what a table is, or I don't know, maybe you're a carpenter, but I'm guessing not. If you're, so if you're listening and you're not a carpenter, you have a pretty vague representation in your mind of a table. You think, okay, I know what a table is because I can give you a propositional. A table is a place to put your stuff or something, right? But you don't know a table the way that a carpenter knows a table. Because mm -hmm. a carpenter can see a piece of wood and see a table come out of it and know how it's constructed. And they can know how to go back and make, he, he or she can know, knows how to go back and create that table. And that's a deeper layer of knowledge. And it mm -hmm. literally means that the world has more meaning for you. In the same way, someone who can dance and who can wrestle and who can work side to side by people or do teamwork with people has a whole set of embodied physical meanings that are available to them in relationship to other physical agents. And those are the fundamental connections that actually give meaning to life, along with the layer of connection to the transcendent, which are those kind of, I think of them as the powers and principalities above us. So I try to view these things from a kind of rational materialist worldview, um, not because that's exhaustive or necessarily the right frame to think about everything, because it's a frame that, that has been very effective in, in what we're doing scientifically, but it's very grounded and it's comfortable for me. So from that perspective, a spirit, it's not some metaphysical thing necessarily. It, it's literally the collective intelligences that arise from the interaction of multiple agents. So when you walk through the woods, the birds will get silent and tell you that there is a predator in the environment. And you, you don't know that there's a predator moving through the environment because one bird became silent. It's only in the group action of the birds that details of the environment become available to you. 
So there's a collective intelligence and all the birds are networked in, right? The birds are neural networks in a neural network. And it creates highly intelligent behavior that can be attuned to by every other agent that moves through that environment. That's the spirit of the birds. And so we can, we can kind of take that example and think any, any collection of human beings develops a spirit that can be attuned to that's above the level of the individual agents. Any collection of organisms, really. And you can start looking at, you know, the higher level metaphysics and say, maybe there's, there's higher principles than that, that are, that those are sort of all derived from or uh, merge up into, but that is enough for me <laughs> to say there is something like a spiritual dimension to life and that having the right relationship to that spiritual dimension is a fundamental aspect of having connectedness and meaning in life. So I think I went kind of a little bit off the course of the original question, but that was, you know, kind of at the fundamental of the way that I'm thinking about these things. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I took a couple of notes. Um, did I, did I get this correctly? That like what, what you said in the beginning, that when, that when we we're born in the first month, we kind of discover our bodies and then with our bodies, the world. Yep. And through this process, we kind of get to know the meaning of our mm -hmm. body, the meaning of the world, of other people, of um, uh, communication on, of, on different levels, and that all of this is a somatic process. Like we yes. do this with our bodies, mm -hmm. and then, and then, kind of on like. Like we could say that somatic work kind of deals with this, right? Also like mm -hmm. becoming emotionally literate to like, ah, okay, maybe I don't visibly arch my back when I'm upset, but mm -hmm. I can still kind of notice this tension when I pay attention to my body. Yeah. So yeah. this is what we deal with in somatic therapy, right? To kind of, ah, mm -hmm. okay, maybe the back pain is because you constantly arch your back slightly because there's, you're, you're upset, you know, like to, to make it super, super mm -hmm. simple. Yeah. But then kind of on top of this level, we can start to explore, we can start to evolve, we can start to um, invent things, like by, by interacting with objects, for example, creating tools, and that this is where, where the human evolution takes place in a way. But yeah, our developmental process is a process of, of realizing the world as in making it real through interacting with it and getting feedback. And there's multiple layers of feedback, but there's the feedback of, can I jump this gap? Right. I jumped the gap. I didn't jump the gap. Uh, so now I know this is kind of my relationship to clearing that space. But the meanings that we see around us are always socially negotiated as well. Right. So there's a, there's a, there's a socially acceptable way to use a cup, mm -hmm. right? There are socially unacceptable ways to use a cup, right? <laughs> If someone decided that they were going to get up in the middle of a conference room and use a cup as a toilet, um, yeah. people would be very upset because they would have violated the schema of values that we have associated with cups. Right? Yeah. If you saw Not somebody, only cups, I think. But yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's many layers of it, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but meaning is socially negotiated, right? Yeah. And, and it's revealed to us as children 
by the way the people around us react to how we interact with the things that we use. So if a child picks up a screwdriver and treats it as a sword and their parent punishes them for treating it as a sword, that they've been, they've been conditioned to close down a potential way of viewing the meaning of that object. Yeah. And, and a lot of it happens probably also by um, observing how the grown-ups mm -hmm. use specific tools. Yeah, absolutely. So we're, I mean, a screwdriver in some sense is, a, is an infinite set of things that could happen. And we are tuning in constantly to the people around us to get information about what the meaning of the thing is. If you watch kids, um, you'll see that they're constantly referencing back to their parent to tell them the appropriate response to something. There's a really beautiful video that's been going around social media of um, a father and a son sitting down watching a football match. And the team scores, a, one of the teams scores a goal. And the little boy throws up his air, his hands like, oh my God, this is so exciting. This is so good. And then he looks over at his dad and his dad is crushed and like, oh no, it's so bad. And then the little boy completely shifts to his dad's frame, right? He's, yeah. he's relying on his dad to give him the information for what the proper effective response is to this situation. You know, yeah. when, when the gold team scores, we feel sad. When the red team scores, we feel yeah. happy. Yeah. And when you see one of the things that's a huge pet peeve of mine, I think it's so, so important and people don't realize it. We are constantly giving children the message that moving their body in the environment is scary and unsafe and that falling down is not safe. So yeah. if a child gets up and tries to climb something and it's, it's exploring, it's excited, it's in its play state, and the child looks at their parent and the parent is freaking out about what's happening, the child is going to, to start to mimic that state and it's going to learn that climbing things is not safe. And every time that a child falls down, not every time, but many times when a child falls down, they're not, they're not injured. Yeah. And they look to the parent for the significance of the fall. So the parent reacts as if the fall is very potentially damaging and the child will, will then start crying and need comfort. Yeah. And so what is happening is that as a culture, rather than encouraging courage in our children and resilience, what we're doing is, is we're inculcating fear and anxiety and distrust of their own body and the environment into them in the way that we are socially responding to their exploratory movement. And I think this is, uh, I think this is incredibly profound and a root of a lot of problems that we face as a culture. I think people really don't understand to what degree the meanings that we experience are acted out and embodied and that they're socially negotiated and that we, we can do that in a way that can be very damaging to people too. You're a father, right? You, you have what, mm -hmm. three children? Three children. I have a 10-year-old daughter, a eight-year-old boy, and a five-year-old girl. Okay. So 
how do you or what would you suggest how to navigate these situations where children attempt to do potentially dangerous things? And I imagine your children doing dangerous things <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, my five-year-old is working on front flips right now. She's uh, very <laughs> excited by hanging from things and dropping high, right? She's probably dropped maybe up to four feet, and that's very exciting for her. So the way that we kind of approach it is we, first of all, try to trust the child generally. Children are actually, you know, past a certain age, they're very good at knowing what their body is capable of. Where they tend to make mistakes is not recognizing hazards in the environment. So they'll look at maybe jumping to grab something. And if they think that they can jump the gap, they probably can. But what they might not realize is the thing that they're jumping to isn't going to be stable and support them. Yeah, sure. So what I try to do is it, uh, with my kids is help them recognize what's happening in the environment. So like, hey, does that look slippery? Does that look secure for your hands, right? Right now, there's a tree outside the house that the kids love. And, you know, they, they keep swinging too far out on the branches and they're afraid they're going to break the branches. And so I'm just trying to tune them into like, you can swing on the branches. That's fine. I just want you to have your hands close to the trunk. So I'm just informing them about what is a potential risk factor in the environment. And then when they want to do something that I don't feel 100% comfortable with them, I'll ask them if I can spot or if we can create a situation that is safer. If I'm really anxious, I try not to inhibit them and stop them from what they're doing. I try to negotiate a solution that feels safe, but allows them to pursue what they're trying to pursue. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have, you have many abilities and skills, and I assume you've trained hard for them. Yeah. Um, and, and so do your children. I, like, I, I've, seen, I've seen videos of your children doing amazing yeah. stuff. And I'm wondering, to what degree do you push them to keep practicing something or do you trust in their own love for the thing or their own interest, their curiosity to train whatever they need, wish to accomplish or yeah, how much do you get involved in this process? Yeah, it's shifted over the years. When I was, when I first had my kids, I was very influenced by behavioral genetics and behavioral genetics mostly shows that the parents don't have that much of an effect on their kids. <laughs> and so my, my, my sort of philosophy was like, treat the kid with kindness so that it's a good relationship, right? So that it's enjoyable yeah. to be around yeah. for both of you, but don't try to install too much in your kids because they're just going to go out and install the things they want in them, right? <laughs> um, in themselves. But over time, I've become a little bit more hands-on and more about encouraging specific things because I see myself as playing a role of of essentially resisting the, the direction of the culture, right? Uh -huh. So if they're going to be kind of like invited over to friends' houses who are going to eat standard American diets and play video games, it's like they're, gonna, they're going to be getting certain messages, certain constraints in that environment if they're going to be sitting in schools, et cetera. Like, For instance, I'm having a conversation with my kids right now about when it's appropriate to engage in self-defense. So they are told all the time that violence is never the answer. And I think this is an extremely dangerous message to give children because when someone is violent towards you, sometimes the only answer you have available to you is violence in return. 
And if you've been told over and over again that it's never acceptable to engage in violence, you won't protect yourself. You don't have permission. You have, you've had those circuits inhibited in you. So my older daughter in particular is very high in empathy and she's very sort of has a natural antipathy towards any kind of physical violence. Um, and so for me, it's been very important to put her in situations where she's learning self-defense and she's learning the principles of martial arts. And so we went through, we did martial arts with her when she was younger and that was fine. She roughhouses with me and her brother, um, and her little sister, but she kind of got burned out and, and stopped doing it. And we gave, we respected that. But as she became a little more mature and I was able to talk to her about it, I started to explain to her, for me, you learning self-defense is like learning math. It's a fundamental life skill. Mm -hmm. And we started talking about the idea that just because something that what you bring into something determines how you experience as much as what the thing is. So she struggled with, with the sense that her little brother is naturally more athletic and he gets more praise than she is because he's accomplishing the same thing as her, or maybe a little bit more, but he's younger. Yeah. And so part of that's mistakes we made as a parent, but part of it is that he will just not stop right? <laughs> he will just keep doing the same thing over and over again until he can do it. He doesn't get frustrated to the same degree. He doesn't get anxious when things don't go his way to the same degree as she does. And so she's upset because he achieved the thing and she didn't achieve the thing. And she thinks it's because he's more naturally talented than her. And I think physically there's not that much of a difference. If there's any difference, what it is, is that he put in a hundred reps and she did 10 reps and then was upset about things. <laughs> Right. I think so. We, we, we did a few things. First, we, we recognized that that comparison was really inhibiting to her. So we started creating athletic activities for her that were separate from him. So she didn't have to compare herself to her brother. And that helped a lot to instill confidence in her and remind her that she's actually exceptionally strong. Right. But now I've come back to her and said, okay, I, I want you to come back to the ninja gym with us. And I want you to recognize that if you come in and you decide to be upset about what your brother's doing, you decide to do this, you're going to have a bad experience. But if you come in and see this environment as a place to play and you see all these social connections you can make, how you can play with your little sister, it can be a really, really rewarding experience. So I want you to just recognize how your mindset impacts your experience of this. And since we've really had that talk, you know, she was crying and upset with me when we had that talk, but since then, she had a great time. She's really excited to go back to the martial arts. So I am, I am thinking of the physical things that we do as a fundamental part of their education. And I'm trying to foster these capacities in, them in a very intentional way, very intentional. And at the same time, I try to leave a lot of freedom. We want to foster their autonomy. So I say, we have to do an athletic activity once a week, or twice a week. You get to choose what it is. So my daughter, if she wanted to go to gymnastics, she could go to gymnastics instead of doing parkour training with us. But there's like a fundamental locomotive aspect to movement that has to be addressed in her education. She can kind of choose. I give her as much freedom to choose within that. And then for instance, we don't go to classes for parkour or, um, or gymnastics or, or enjoy or whatever it is right now. I just take them to this open gym that, that, uh, so it's an open time. So it's an hour and a half, once or twice or sometimes three times a week that they can play in this space. And then 
I will give them challenges. I'll say, Hey, I'd like you to try this. But if they say, I don't want to, then I just let, leave them alone and let them, let them do what they want to do. And sometimes we invite friends and then I know that they're just going to go play with their friends the whole time. And then sometimes it's me with the kids and I, my attention is there for them and they can ask me for support on learning specific skills. <laughs> and uh, the younger two in particular, and now actually um, my oldest daughter as well, have started really coming to me and saying, I want to learn this skill. Can you help me? Can you stand with me? Can you give me cues? Can you help me figure out how to learn the skill? Mm -hmm. And that's been really, uh, really nice to see them taking it and igniting it for themselves and using me as a resource rather than me dictating to them what yeah. specifically they should be working on. Yeah. Mm, thank you for sharing yeah, these for sure. insights in your family. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it's a bit of a similar note because I, I heard you say that meaning is something that can sustain a practice when we don't have fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, like this aspect of, of discipline when you're like, okay, this mm -hmm. might not be what I'm most interested in, but um, it, it is meaningful and it is important or it has value. Like, like you say, for instance, like martial arts training or self-defense yeah. or, yeah, like creating meaning through skills that I acquire. Mm -hmm. So what would you say like for, for grown up people that wish to develop a sustainable practice, like how do we navigate this necessary discipline without being hard on ourselves, without pushing us in a way like, yeah, mm -hmm. the way you just phrased this, like, like not dictating what to do, yeah. like when we kind of are our own parent as a grown yeah. up that, that, yeah, yeah, like how, yeah, how to approach this. So I think there's, you can kind of think of it as you want to create freedom within constraints, which is always sort of the world that we exist within. There are fundamental constraints on us. We're going to die. We're going to suffer, you know, gravity. It's always there. Um, so we learn to play a game within these constraints. So you, You want to set up a set of constraints that's sufficiently narrow that it keeps you focused and goal-directed, but sufficiently open that you have lots of space to play within it. And so a lot of what people struggle with in their training is adopting really narrow constraints that aren't very meaningful to them. So I have to lose 20 pounds in a specific amount of time, or in order to do that, I have to do this kind of, of workout. And it can be, you know, you often discover that it's very hard and it requires a lot of willpower to do it. And it's not enough meaning. So we want to, we want to connect. For me, we're always trying to connect these ideas to the highest level. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to lose some weight right now myself. I've lost uh, 15 pounds since November and I had gained weight because of some health problems that I've been addressing. Now, why do I want to lose weight? I want to lose weight because I like to fly through the air. <laughs> and I'm, and I want my joints to have less to absorb when I'm hitting the ground. I want to be able to be lighter moving off the ground. And so for me, it's not, um, it's, it's not that aesthetics don't matter to me. They do, but that's only one, one note in this sort of symphony mm -hmm. that, that motivates change for me. Right. I have these really clear goals because of things that I want to accomplish that are really, that are really connecting to me, to the world and ways that, that matter to me. Right. Like I get so much joy 
from the experience of being able to do a Bitcoin precision or a new front flip or climb a tree really fast, uh, that, that like sustaining and taking care of my body in a way that allows me to access those things is highly relevant and obvious to me. So that's fundamentally what I'm trying to do is get people to see deeper layers of their motivation. And a lot of that is revealed through play. So I think that we, we want to recognize and, and access the power of play, play as a form of education. You learn faster when you're experiencing play, um, play as a revelation of what your internal motivation states are. Every person plays in ways that are kind of specific to their own temperament. And that will be a guide to the things that will be good fits for you later in life, right? A kid who likes to play by spending time alone by themselves in the wood might be a great field biologist and maybe not such a good host at a restaurant, right? <laughs> yeah. So how you play is revelatory of who you are. And so when you go back to and you give yourself space to engage in these fundamental forms of play that we move through as children, you're actually learning about yourself. Um, and then you can get to the bottom of your motivational schema so you can organize your behavior to fulfill the most important things to you. And that will make the changes that you want to make much easier to achieve. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's part of it. Um, so I'm trying to cohere some, some different kind of thoughts that I have around this issue. And I'm, I'm not sure how they all exactly connect, but the other thing that came up when you were asking that question is this idea of two forms of self-discipline that the Greeks identified. One was sophrosyne and the other was inkratia. So you can imagine that sophrosyne is essentially self-discipline that doesn't require willpower. And inkratia is something that it requires willpower. So you can imagine that, say, uh, a married man meets a beautiful young woman who's flirtatious with him and wants to connect with him sexually, right? And one man chooses not to do it, chooses to be loyal to his wife, but he's torn up by it. It's really hard for him. He has to exert a lot of willpower to step away from the situation. Mm -hmm. The other man can see that this woman is attractive, can see that the, the potential connection and sexual experience would be wonderful, but just doesn't, doesn't have any impact. It just glides off the surface. That's so foreseen. So my way of viewing self-discipline is that Kratia is a temporary solution. If you're trying to grit your teeth through setting up your diet, you're going to fail eventually. Mm -hmm. Right? If mm -hmm. you are tempted by every woman who flirts with you in a marriage, you're going to fail eventually. <laughs> right? Or you're just going to make your spouse miserable. Yeah. Right? Because you're punishing her for, for the fact that you're struggling in yourself all the time. Yeah. So you're, you try to use Inkratia to set up systems that allow you to have software cynic self-control. So you use the example that I just gave of, of like a sexual temptation. You might ask yourself, what is it in the system of my marriage that leaves something left over for me that's not, not addressed? How can I go back to my marriage and negotiate so that all my needs are met? Or maybe it's not even in my marriage, but in other aspects of my community. Maybe you're tempted by this potential sexual experience because you're just lonely. You don't have yeah. good friendships. And this is one way of, of having some intimacy that you're actually really needing from your friends and your family. Yeah. So you, you want to start 
thinking of when you exert willpower, it's to build the systems that allow you to not have to exert willpower so that your life sets you up to always be tempted only by the good. Mm -hmm. And kind of the last jumble of thoughts that has to do with this is this idea that, that I've had for, for many years that self-development or development in general is always dependent on these two poles of love and discipline, right? To change yourself, you have to care. You have to give yourself care. But then you also have to constrain yourself from behaviors that are not, that are not feeding the change that you're trying to, to use. So you're, you're always, you know, like you want to, you want to get, uh, you want to get fitter. You need to eat less food. You need to train harder, right? But if you just eat less food and less food and train harder and harder, you just, you discipline yourself into depression and anxiety <laughs> and yeah. injury, right? So it's like, you have to recognize there's a point at which the discipline is actually excessive. And then you need to engage in self-care, right? How do I refeed myself? How do I replenish myself? And so you, you want to be balanced between self-care and self-discipline. And then self-care and self-discipline, or in some sense, uh, it's not just that you want to balance between these two poles. You want to be constrained, free in some sense. Um, it's also that there's a, a more mature or there's a, a shadow to each. Discipline easily turns into abuse of self or abuse of others if you're applying discipline to others. And self-care easily turns into indulgence. So you could be like, you could, you know, have a relatively even balance between the, the constraint side and the opening up and bringing things inside. It's very deranged, right? It could be like for three weeks out of the month, I run every day, 20 miles, every joint in my body hurts, right? And I only eat broccoli and rice and chicken and I hate every meal um, and I'm hungry constantly. And then for one week of the, uh, of the month, I'm on cocaine and drink tons of alcohol and eat everything and, you know, it's like, balance, but it's not good. So, so the, the negative side of discipline, yeah, is abuse. You can, are you going on that run because it's actually affording you your goal or are you going on that run because it's a way of punishing yourself? Mm -hmm. Are you eating the donut because it's actually going to take care of you and you need what's in the donut or is it just indulgent? Right? Mm -hmm. So we're always trying to balance those two. And for me, ultimately, those come down to always looking to deepen your uh, knowledge of self and your love of self. And then everything that you could say about how you should treat yourself in that way is how you want to treat a child, is how you want to treat a spouse, is how you want to treat a student. You're always trying to give, you're always trying to better understand and love more deeply. And mm. to do that, you also always have to be willing to stand against the part of somebody that is not serving them. And then you always have to be looking to feed the parts of them that are serving them. Yeah. So I don't know if I made a clean connection between all those three, but those are the three areas of my life thought that seemed um, related to your question. Yeah, I think, I think probably there's kind of a deep, deep dive into what is meaningful to you necessary in order to create the structures that will support mm -hmm. a balanced habit 
right? Because I, you, you touched on this uh, briefly when you were talking about your kids, that that you have to kind of protect them from tendencies in our society, right? That that when they when they go to friends, they will eat shit and they will play video games, and you have to steer against this. Yeah. For so that they will not like fall into these addictive habits, and I think we're we're all kind of exposed to this, right? I mean, you mm -hmm. also mentioned sitting in front of screens so much, and then I, for instance, I, I live in Berlin. It's a huge city, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's a relatively green city, but it's still yes. a city, and then I, I really have to take care of being in nature enough or even mm -hmm. at all, you know, like yeah. I have to actively create this for me. I can't just leave the house and I'm in the forest. I mm -hmm. I have to take several actions to do this. So, so I think it's really, it's not something that will eventually just happen that I, that I decide, ah, I think it's better to go for a walk than to have another piece of cake, but it's <laughs> really something that I have to I really have to want this and I have to know why I want it and why it is meaningful and not only what I'm supposed to do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Our whole education system, it tends to be about sort of enforcement of norms and enforcement of things you should know rather than how to generate valid knowledge. And so one thing that's coming out of the motor learning literature is this idea of learning autonomy. So this is a big thing that I focus on with my, with my kids, because I think it's fundamental to actually knowing what is meaningful to you, what your whys are, right? So mm -hmm. to ground this down, like I'm watching my son attempt backflips, right? And my first instinct as someone who coached gymnastics for many years is to like cue him on exactly what he did wrong every time he does a backflip. And, you know, years ago I learned that like Lots of cues is definitely not as good as just like one central cue, <laughs> but I'm even trying to make my, it's interesting. It's essentially a Socratic approach to teaching because rather than tell him what he did wrong, I will ask him what he thinks he could have done better or why he didn't land on his feet on that one so that I'm getting him to generate his own answers. So I'm getting him to pay attention to what's going on internally. And then I can ask him another question like, okay, so we've done some backflips and now I noticed that the last few were not as good as the previous ones. So then I could ask him, hey, Kier, are you starting to feel, do you feel, uh, um, do you feel tired now? Is that why these are starting to, to be harder? And then he can tell me like, oh yeah, I feel tired. And then you can give him a choice. Do you want to just stop for today? You know, you've done something, you've accomplished something that's great. You can, you have the option to, to quit right now, or maybe you just need to walk over and grab a drink of water, and then you can come back and keep working on the skill, give your body some rest. And so I'm, I'm always trying to set up as many kind of clear choices that they can make, mm -hmm. um, within like a goal that constrains the choices and then a respect for their own system and what's happening in it. Yeah and trying to attune them to their own awareness of it. And I think that this kind of coaching, it's, it's, um, it's fundamental, you know, like it's going to get him his backflip faster and more securely, but it's also exemplifying for him a process by which he comes to know what's actually going on internally and to respect it and view it as central to him accomplishing his goals. Yeah.
Would you approach it the same way with an adult student? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And how do you carve out goals that are meaningful for them? Mm -hmm. So we introduced a game and we see how people respond to it, right? That's, that's just the mm -hmm. beginning. And then as you're working with the student, you'll see which students kind of, they, they grasp certain things that becomes important to them. Uh, and then you can start a dialogue. That's one of the things that we do in our coaching is that when we do a drill or a series of drills or a series of games, we will often take a break and have the students discuss with each other what they learned from the drill, how they felt about the drill, how they might want to integrate it into their practice going forward, who they might become if they integrated these practices. So we're always calling forth that internal self-awareness so that they're developing a better model of self through this rather than having a sort of prefabricated value system stamped on them. <laughs> cool. So the, the, the first step, it sounds like the first steps really explore through play what gets you yeah. going and what is fun and where you feel yeah. your element. And yeah, there's, I mean, you know, people come to me for a specific reason. They've seen me jump around in trees or seen me do stuff. And so they, they're, they're obviously called to do something that has to do with what I do. So just by being around me, there's a, there's a permission that they have, that this is available to them. The social coding of behavior has shifted because I'm holding the space for them to do things that I might not normally do. And my yeah. staff is. Um, so if we take people to trees and they've seen me jump around in those trees, then the meaning of those trees is I can, I can I'm allowed to do this. And they might go to the trees in their own city and be inhibited because of their own history and background. Um, but when they see the trees that they've seen me jump on, then they have a sense of, okay, this is okay. And <laughs> what we find is that, um, that simple sense of permission is usually enough to ignite something in people. Like most people as kids were attracted to climbing trees. And so you just, I, usually the first thing we do in a workshop when we take people into the trees is so like, I want you to imagine that you're eight years old and you see these amazing trees. How would you respond? Go do that. Spend five minutes just letting them play out their in, inherent play drive in relationship to the trees. And then we can offer them some games to play and see how they respond mm -hmm. to the games. And then we can offer them mm -hmm. some principles and ideas and techniques to improve how they're able to access and interact with that environment. And then, so we can do the same thing with some rough and tumble play. We can do the same thing with some object games. And as we're doing that, they're they're essentially revealing something to themselves. Like maybe they came and like the trees were just so good, right? Or maybe they came and it was like, I'm just so attracted to doing this kind of play with other people. Um, and so just exposing people to a new landscape of meaning and giving them freedom to kind of move within it. It's already helping them map who they are internally at a much deeper level. Are you willing to tackle another subject? Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> so, because I'm I'm hyped that you studied uh, evolutionary biology. Mm -hmm. 
I'm very, very interested in this. Like the whole, yeah. the whole thing of what did we evolve to do? What is actually appropriate for our species? Um, mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of the suffering we experience nowadays, a lot of the illnesses and, and mental illnesses that we um, suffer from are because we are not living appropriate for our species in a way. Yeah. And but then again I don't want to romanticize like the stone age or <laughs> any other age because obviously there were other challenges mm -hmm. that we don't want to return to. So it's not about going back to a specific time in our evolution. But on the other hand it seems obvious that it's necessary to evolve to something else than we are in right now and I mean there are approaches with AI to kind of um enhance how we engage with the world or robots that take the heavy lifting off of us so that we can only chat online about uh, the philosophy yeah. of things. But so, so what is your perspective on this? Where are we in, in our evolution? Like what kind of turning point are we maybe facing or uh, it's not, it's not a clear question, I guess, but, yeah. but I, I, I think I could respond. There's a, I mean, I, I definitely think we're in a point of, of crisis in the mismatch between the human being and the environment in which we operate. It's important to understand that the organisms are always facing a changing environment, right? There's a tendency within the kind of ancestral health community, the paleo community, to think that there's some like point in history, like the African savanna. 200,000 years ago, human beings all lived happily, had plenty of food, you know, had no diseases, were just having sex all the time and it was perfect and nobody had war and nobody ever ate a grain and therefore they all had 6% body fat and looked like CrossFit <laughs> athletes. It's like, this is not how evolution works, right? <laughs> the reality of evolution is that the environment is always changing, right? So the African savanna was contracting or expanding based on what was happening with the ice sheets and the sun and any number of other systems. And uh, animals were coming and going, right? Some of the animals that we were eating and hunting might have been going extinct because for whatever reason, some other new predator might be entering our environment. We were getting colonized by bacteria, viruses all the time that were creating crises for us. So it's not a new thing for a human being to be um, at a point of environmental crisis by any means. Um, and we evolved for that, right? Like everything that evolved, evolved because it could survive in this face of change. So there's a way in which the way we think about the ancestral health perspective, to me, it kind of recapitulates the Christian idea of the fall. There was the Garden of Eden, and then and everything was great. And then somewhere along the lines, we fucked up and we created agriculture and we, you know, gained the knowledge of good and evil, and we're all suffering to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's the wrong way to think about it. But mm. the reality is that a, a system like a human being is anti-fragile. It's adaptable to change up to a point, and there's a point at which it's going to fail in the face of change. And we face this problem, which is that we, our capacity for technology has accelerated the rate at which the environment changes around us. 
Yeah. Um, and that, that is creating a real crisis. Um, and we're seeing it in, you know, the obesity epidemic, epidemics of depression, anxiety, suicide rates, like, um, the, just the whole meaning system of our culture is in crisis. People cannot agree on what a woman is <laughs> and they're, they're, you know, that's, that's fracturing our democracy. So we are, uh, yeah, in, you know, like that's, uh, <laughs> um, really tripped over the, uh, the hot, hot button subjects here, but like the fact <laughs> that we can surgically alter someone to be more like the other sex actually does have something to do with the fact that technology is changing the meanings that are available to us in the environment. And this is destabilizing and we don't know what to do with it. Right. And we are, you know, what's happening right now, for instance, is, uh, you can have AI edit your pictures to make you more beautiful, or you can generate any number of AI avatars that are perfectly adapted to your personal sexual preferences. So I think, I believe right now, 26% of young American men between the ages of 18 and 30 have never had sex. Oh, wow. So we have a complete crisis in the, the fundamental thing of the sexes getting together and being able to reproduce and have children, right? Fertility rates across the world are dropping off a cliff. I grew up in the era of the population bomb and I worry about overpopulation. People are still very worried about overpopulation, but we are facing huge issues with the fact that we are decreasing in population so fast in most of the Western industrialized world that we don't have enough workers to support the elderly in the society. Um, we might not have enough workers to support the fundamental architecture that keeps our society going in a generation or two. Um, so we are the, the, like, there's nothing you could say, there's nothing more fundamental than this evolutionarily, like the capacity of the sexes to meet and reproduce. That's the, that's the base, right? <laughs> and, and AI girlfriends are a big disruption for that. <laughs> yeah. Right? And dating apps, which allow, you know, hyper attractive men to, be accessible as dating partners for a very large pool of women who otherwise wouldn't be able to, to get a date with, with a guy like that. Um, and then the rest of the men can just go have AI girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's extremely disruptive. So, um, it, maybe some of your, your, your listeners will sound like a right wing whack job <laughs> as I talk about some of these things, but, but we know that, that, that a technology can have this type of disruptive potential already because we've seen what's happened with social media and smartphones. And, you know, Jonathan Haidt documented this really well in his book, The Cuddling of the American Mind. We are seeing huge skyrocketing rates of suicide and depression in 11-year-old girls, right? 10 and 11-year-old girls, the youngest cohort of girls who basically had zero suicide until quite recently. And it's highly associated with exposure to social media. So girls who are on Instagram when they're 10 and 11 years old, they can, like girls who are 10 and 11 year olds, years old are often engaged in a lot of social bullying or victims of a lot of social bullying. 
But social media amplifies that capacity for bullying vastly. So the social ostracization, the gossiping, those things that are typically female forms of aggression, like social media is the greatest force amplifier for that ever, right? It's like we've moved from the stone age of female typical aggression to the nuclear age. And it's literally killing young women and deranging them. So this should be of great concern to people. It should be of greatest concern to people. And the fact that the next set of tech, we have not adapted to the smartphone era. We have not adapted to the Twitter era, to the Instagram era. And now we're going to be entering the chat GPT era and the AI girlfriend era and, you know, the VR headset pornography era. You know, think about like going from pornography to OnlyFans and how you have these, these parasocial relationships. Now imagine that you could start a corporation where you could, you could generate AIs that are designed to look exactly like you could have 50 girlfriends who are all based on your preferences, but are all slightly variable. So they, they smash that novelty button who are designed to be, to, to be optimal personalities that you can talk to. And so you can generate thousands, tens of thousands, millions of these female AI only fan types right? Yeah. That are, that are designed to be hyper addictive to young males. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the, and the, the system has so much power to iterate and figure out what's going to be addictive and, and get its hooks into people. Um, yeah, like I, I'm, I think we need a radical reconceptualization of the relationship between, um, human flourishing and technology and where we put our priorities. So that's, I, I think that we, that we have to, we have far more technology than we have wisdom to operate. Um, yeah. and, and, and it's, it's hard because there's this balance, which is a majority of the world is still like impoverished. They're still, you know, struggling to, get enough food, struggling to have enough heat, struggling to escape epidemic diseases. And what has empowered us to get out of that is capitalism and, and, and technology. And so it's like, we, we need to be able to figure out systems that create the energy to allow those people to live well. And, you know, over the last 50 years, like China went from a place where almost everyone was on the verge of starving to a place where there's a vast emerging middle class that has been an immense benefit in the sense of like how many people are flourishing on the planet. So we can't, we can't simply uncouple these systems, but the fact there's like, there's no real resistance to AI right now, yeah. uh, is terrifying. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I find I it. I find it terrifying as well, definitely. And I, 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 my mind is also circling back to what you shared in the beginning of that—that that the way we um, interact with our environment shapes our brain. And mm-hmm. I mean, probably there is some insight, but probably also nearly not, not nearly enough insight on what interacting with digital surfaces, like what kind of mm-hmm. damage it creates on this level. We don't. Yeah. So, I mean, 
it, when I, uh, you know, maybe in the late nineties, early aughts, we had a huge panic around do violent video games cause people to become violent. And then people pointed out that there's no association between playing violent video games and engaging in violent behavior. And that as violent video games have been becoming more common, uh, that violence has been going down or was going down. Mm-hmm. So the, the rationalists were like this, this objection was just clearly false. We need to not engage in these false narratives. Same thing for pornography, right? It's like, okay, you know, the, there was a lot of feminists who would say that if you, if you allow men to, to consume pornography, it will dehumanize and objectivize, uh, objectivize women. And there'll be this, this sort of chain of, of, of extremeness where they'll like go from wanting a certain type of porn to wanting more intense porn, which will then show up in the way they relate to women where they'll be, you know, essentially you're just going to create an army of rapists was the sort of idea. And the early statistics came back on that and said, no, this is not what's happening at all. In fact, as pornography has gotten more common, uh, sexual violence towards women has been decreasing. And I, I think in, in some sense, those two specific problems that were raised have mostly proven to be untrue. I'm a little bit more, uh, a little bit more leery on the relationship between pornography and, and, and sexuality than I am video mm. games and, and, and physical violence. But, but the initial objection wasn't backed by the data, but now we're seeing a different problem, right? The problem with pornography isn't that it's causing men to behave predatorily towards women sexually. It's causing men to not behave towards women sexually at all. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> You know, there's a the central tendency that like Jordan Peterson has pointed out within like say progressive versus conservative thinking is that progressives see what's novel and want to incorporate it. And uh conservatives see something novel and say, Hey, that might be dangerous. We should be careful with it. And that that central conservative tendency of like, let's let's think carefully about this. Uh there's a famous um conservative thinker, G. K. Chesterton, who talks about the uh, uh this parable of the fence, right? So you're walking through the woods. And uh, you see a fence and the fence doesn't seem to be closing anything specific off and seems to just be a barrier in the way of people. And so the, the liberal tendency would just be to get rid of the fence. It doesn't serve a purpose. Right. And his, his argument was, if you don't know the purpose of the fence, then you can't be responsible for getting rid of it. <laughs> and so there's a lot of things in our culture that are sort of like, hey, Maybe it's a bad idea to let young men just like consume huge quantities of naked sexual imagery, right? And then people are like, well, why? And they're like, well, because they'll be violent towards women. So, well, they're not violent towards women. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's true, but maybe it's, there's a lot of other problems that are downstream that just haven't been identified. Yeah. yeah. And maybe that inherent instinct of let's be careful with this actually has some wisdom to it, even if the specific claim was just a rationalization that didn't actually end up being true. Yeah. And so my sense is that there's a lot of ways in which these things are playing out that are impacting the whole culture in very diverse ways. Um, And we aren't responsible enough to be sort of willy-nilly allowing a lot of these things into our culture. Another quote that I love is the greatest trick the devil ever played was rebranding the surveillance state as social media. 
<laughs> you know, I remember when everyone got on Facebook and it was like Facebook was just a, a utility that allowed you to do a lot of things socially and make them easier, right? You could organize a party on Facebook and it was yeah. easier than having to actually call people. Yeah. And it was like, this it's really nice user experience. Everybody's adopting it. It's great, right? Like what, what could go wrong with this? Yeah. Like, oh, well, it turns out Facebook's now one of the most powerful entities in the entire world. And they're mining your data to sell it to corporations so they can more effectively sell you products. Um, yeah. And they've given it right to the government too. Mm-hmm. Mainlining the government every single private detail about every single private citizen that they can. And then not only do they have the data, they have so much data that they need to have AIs to, to run through that data and generate information off of it. Yeah. So we haven't adapted to the fact that we live in the internet age. We haven't adapted to the fact that we live in the smartphone age. And we certainly aren't ready to adapt to the fact that we're moving into the AI age or deep fakes or any of this stuff. So all these companies are just innovating and innovating and innovating. And, you know, they're going to make a buck, but like they literally might be burning the whole thing down. Yeah. (laughs) i'm not a very positive i'm not a techno optimist um I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm like, okay i was i was afraid you were going to say that <laughs> well um that's my thoughts on that is we 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 need to redistribute our 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 talent and effort towards the reconnection of the human being and the earth, of the human being and community, and the cultivation of wisdom, not just knowledge. Yes. Oh, yes. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for taking this road trip with me. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Yes. So would you would you be willing to share some practical tips? Like what is a good starting point to create yeah. a more meaningful practice or to get into movement? Um, to me, the most fundamental thing is go for a walk, right? A normal hunter forager walks five to ten miles a day. Get out, get five miles today. If you can move to nature. Moves through nature. Um, it'll it'll heal you if you can go be by a tree or by a lake. Uh, spend some time doing that. Get sun. Do it first thing in the morning. Right. Your whole you know you want to talk about the impacts of this, these technologies. Blue light is disrupting our circadian rhythms, which is probably destroying our sex hormones, which is impacting all these issues as well. So turn your computer off at least by 9 p.m. every night. When you get up in the morning, take a walk and get blue, uh, morning light in your eyes. Take time to breathe when you're outside. Take time to notice the nature. And when you feel called to physically interact with things, notice if you feel inhibited. <laughs> oh, I'm climb on that. I shouldn't do this. Notice, like, give yourself permission to be a playful person. Give yourself permission to touch the world. You know, I guess the, mm-hmm. the big saying among the younger crowd these days is touch grass. <laughs> yeah. 
go touch grass. Take your <laughs> shoes off, walk in the grass, hang from a tree branch. It will it will be healing for sure. Mm. Mm, wonderful. I think this this kind of already answers the the second question that I would have asked now as to how like what would you suggest people do when they feel emotionally challenged or also what what do you do when you when you're going through times where you're like oh you feel raw or or mm -hmm. challenged in an emotional way but I I feel like yeah reconnecting to nature is also healing on an emotional level absolutely um I do I'm I go to nature every day sort of that's just part of my self-maintenance um mm -hmm. So that's this consistent pattern for me. And absolutely, you know, this morning I was, I was feeling pretty emotionally raw and I, I went down. I'm very lucky. I live next to a park that has um, waterfalls and pools of water and beautiful boulders on this creek. Um, if you've seen my videos and seen me jumping off a cliff or climbing through a waterfall, it's probably this park that I now live six minutes from, like by oh, walking. Oh, God, wow. Yeah. So I can walk to the, the, I can walk to the first waterfall uh, on this creek in about less than 10 minutes. Yes, about seven minutes from the house. So I walked down to the the lower, the, the third lowest waterfall, the four waterfalls, which takes about 15 minutes for me. I was standing on top of this rock, looking down on the water, running through this beautiful landscape of boulders in this canyon. And I just did some Qigong, you know, basic <laughs> Qigong. And I did a little energy, um, Uh, washing meditation that I learned from a therapist many years ago and just did that to calm my nervous system down. And mm -hmm. uh, so I was recently um, interviewed by Jordan Peterson, which was a really big moment for me. And I had a mm -hmm. bunch of crazy stuff happening right <laughs> before that opportunity mm -hmm. came up. And so I went I, I basically like was like, I have to put everything else down in order to prepare for this. I have three days to prepare for this interview. So I went to the, the waterfall and I stripped down and stood on top of the cliff and did the Qigong and I did the, and I did this mantra of like, when I hit this water, I'll wash away everything else that I need to do and I'll be able to be 100% focused on this, this preparing for this. I just told myself that like, you know, over and over again until I felt ready. And then I jumped off, hit the water and swam out. Um, and then I, I was, I had a great time. You know, it was, it was really, I was very dialed for the next three days. Hmm. The other thing that I've been doing a lot recently is I've actually been fall using, uh, one of my teachers, Kit Lachlan's, um, lying meditation series. You know, when I'm, I'm under very high stress right now, just have a lot of, uh, things on my plate that are mean that I'm basically working, uh, on something continuously from six thirty to 10 o'clock at night, usually. Um, so when I feel that sense of exhaustion, I will lie down and do a guided meditation that Kit has on his website. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's a basic yoga nidra lying meditation. And I've found that the practice practicing relaxation every day has been absolutely critical for me in uh, navigating where I'm currently at in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so thanks for sharing. Mm -hmm. So if people are interested, uh, you can find me at evolvemoveplay.com 
and we have online courses available there, retreats. We are actually, if you go to the website right now, it will say workshops are on hiatus for now, but we are in the process of bringing them out of hiatus and should have new workshops available probably by the time that this airs. So sometime by mid-March, we'll actually have a series of two-day workshops that will be um, available for people. And that's really exciting to bring those back. So my staff will be traveling. I may be traveling to some of those dates as well. Um, and yeah, yeah, I'm on Twitter and YouTube and Instagram and all the terrible stuff. Yeah, I'll put all of this in the in the show notes for sure yep. for people to check out. Will you be coming to Europe anytime soon? Do you have plans? I am. I am planning to come to Europe. Yep. I'm, uh, I'm planning to teach in Copenhagen in the beginning of... Uh, the first week of June in London, uh, the second to last weekend of June, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'll maybe see you in Copenhagen. This sounds this sounds yeah. uh, doable. <laughs> My favorite trees in the world in Copenhagen. It's going to be great. Sweet. Yeah. Okay, Rafe. Thank you so so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you, Katarina. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. It was a very inspiring one for me, for sure. Rafe's inspirations definitely changed my movement practice and um, gave me a lot of food for thought that I'm still chewing on. I am aware that we touched on a couple of more controversial topics and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on these. Yeah, so please don't hesitate to get in touch if you would like to continue this conversation. And for now, I wish you all the best and happy movement and meaningful movement. And hopefully see you back in two weeks. Mm -hmm.